Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With your AEW All in London instant analysis. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Sunday just moments after AEW All in London went off the air. So you know the Silver King, Adam Silverstein and Vintage Chris Vanini are here to break down everything that happened on AEW's biggest pay-per-view in the company's entire history and the most attended pay-per-view from a paid attendance standpoint in professional wrestling history. We're going to break down all of that and a lot more for you on today's show. So quickly off the top, allow me to remind you that this podcast is all about Defy. So please do not forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, and all of that good stuff. But not only that, when it comes to pay-per-views and premium live events, we do post pre- and post-show polls on Twitter, and we read the results of those polls right here on the Instant Analysis Podcast. That way we can take your temperature, just like you get to hear our recaps with our results and grades as we break them down on every Instant Analysis episode. Lastly, please do not forget. I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for just five bucks a month or $50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. You get bonus audio anywhere from three to four times a week. You also get news posts over there and your contributions directly support the continuation of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Okay, with all of that out of the way, this is our instant analysis episode. So you know what we do special here on these episodes. We kick things off by cracking open a cold one. And the Silver King is actually going back to an old standby. It is my caramel cream ale from the defunct Dew South Brewing. This beer, just being honest, it's about a year old, so I don't know how it's going to taste, but it's my favorite beer of all time. I have a few left. Let's hope things go well and I don't get sick by the time this show is over. Chris, welcome to the program. What do you have over there? I tell you, recording this around dinner time makes it a lot easier to open up a cold one. It does. And enjoy it, realizing we're not going right to bed at three in the morning. Uh, I, I didn't have much in the fridge, but I pulled out a Mike's Hard Lemonade that I got a couple months ago around one of the WWE shows. Nice and chill. Uh, these things are still pretty good. You always seem ill-prepared for this part of the instant analysis. So here's what I'm going to say. Next, next week. Well, we, here's the thing. Real, real quick, real quick, real quick, real quick, real quick. They yeah. don't sell alcohol on Sundays in Texas. Okay, but you know That's the show's coming. Forget. But I you always know. forget the day. I always remember the day of, and it's too late for me to go get something. Okay, well, here's your reminder, okay? There are two instant analyses that we are doing next week. We have WWE Payback, and somehow we have AEW All Out. We'll have ultimate previews for those shows on Tuesday and Thursday, and we're going to have instant analysis for them on Saturday and Sunday. So here is your reminder to prepare and get some newer, maybe some craft beers, some cold beverages, but stuff that you're not scrounging around in your fridge, pulling out something from uh, 2006, uh, just so that we can go ahead and tape the show. But of course, I'm just having a good time. We are excited to break down AEW all in London for you today. And Chris, I kind of just want to get into all the matches, but let's just tell people, (laughs) you know, there's more to talk about than what happened on the show itself. There's also something we need to talk about that happened backstage, apparently an altercation between, yes, 
CM Punk, and this time, Jack Perry. So what we are going to do is we're going to give you the entire All in London instant analysis. Then before we give you our grades, we will discuss that backstage altercation. We'll give you our grades for the entire show, and we'll talk about what AEW All In means going forward, both for the company and professional wrestling as a whole. But Chris, kicking this off, getting into AEW All In London itself, I just got to say, the atmosphere was fantastic, okay? 80,000 people plus, 81,000 people plus in Wembley Stadium for a big wrestling show. It was fantastic. I do think, you know, there's something to be said for miking up an audience that large. It is very, very difficult to do. And it did not come across in my home as loud as it almost certainly was there. So I don't think it was a fan issue or a crowd issue. It was a microphone issue. It was a production issue. But it still kind of came across good, and you could visually see uh, the crowd being excited about what happened. So because of all of that, no harm, no foul there. I did think that the ring setup lacked a little bit, but I loved the entrance ramp. I loved the stage, the tunnel that they came out of, and they did some pyro at the top of the stadium. So all in all, from a visual standpoint, from an ambiance standpoint, I thought they succeeded. I would give that part of it, if we're grading that part of it, I'd give it a B. Yeah, they nailed this overall, top to bottom, the card, the production, everything. It wasn't perfect. There were things here and there. But I, I, I talked a lot about coming in that they need to make this feel special, need to make this feel like it's one of the biggest, like the biggest wrestling show of all time. And they did that. I loved the tunnel for the entrances. Such a good visual on camera, mm-hmm. you know, just seeing that. I'm, I'm curious if more more. Uh, people try to do that in the future. The pyro, they had a ton of pyro, more pyro than we got at WrestleMania. That was cool. And just everything, it was a lot of fun. The pacing of the show was good. Everything worked. We'll talk about this more in the end of the show, great. But just wanted to say up top that clearly we both really, really like this show. And on the big, in the big moment, the biggest moment of the company, they absolutely delivered. And I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, I think that is a good way to kind of set the stage. AEW delivered. How well did they deliver? We'll save that for the end of the show. Let's kick things off the way AEW All In kicked off with the Ring of Honor Tag Team Championships on the line. Aussie Open against Better Than You, Bay Bay, and this was in zero hour. And for any potential first-time listeners, we don't go in opposite order of the card. We don't go you know, the way that it was delivered. We don't go from the main event backwards. Uh, we go on in order based on what was most important and based on how we kind of want to deliver the card to you. So we're starting with that because obviously it preceded the main event from a storyline standpoint. So again, Aussie Open against Better Than You, Bay Bay. This started 45 minutes before the main card. The champions attacked during the pose down. There was a tease of an MJF dive, but it didn't happen. He did do a double kangaroo kick to a huge pop. Then he shook the ropes like Ultimate Warrior. Then he hit Kyle Fletcher with the double clothesline they both did to win the titles in about seven minutes. Now, Credit to Fletcher for selling that move like a finisher. After the bell, Cole held the world title in his hands until MJF took it from him with a stare down. Cole left quickly, but MJF kind of soaked in the adulation of being a baby face. And that was it. I went three stars and B minus for this, but I actually think that's like giving extra credit because it was a seven minute match. And the two key moves were a kangaroo kick and a double clothesline, but they were fun. So whatever, the crowd pops were fantastic. The match, mediocre. I assume that was because they didn't want them to take any major risks, being that they were main eventers. 
that smart. And for that reason, I'm okay that the match wasn't spectacular or anything. I was personally happy that my prediction of them winning the titles was right. It made sense for the pop and because Cole got the one Ring of Honor title that he had not claimed. In the moment, though, I was a little deflated that there were no further storyline developments. That's just we expected something to happen here. Plus, let's be fair to Aussie Open. They did kind of look like shit losing to a basic move like a double clothesline. We didn't need to turn MJF Cole per se, but you just figured something would happen to create additional buzz going into the show. It didn't happen. It ended up not mattering. But in the moment, I was like, oh, I kind of expected more here. Yeah, that was the biggest question. This was the biggest debate we had on the Ultimate Preview was like, what is the purpose of this match and what's going to happen or not happen? Ultimately, it was exactly what I thought it would be. It would be a simple match where they win and nobody turns on anybody. They're safe. And the purpose is to just perhaps sell a couple more pay-per-views. I I think that's all really the purpose of that was, as opposed to giving them the belts, you know, on, on Dynamite the week before or a couple days before. So... All in all, it worked. I, there wasn't much to it, but it, it it gave them the Ring of Honor titles. You got a little pop out there to start. It was it was a good, uh, interesting, different way to start. And yeah, it ultimately accomplished what they wanted. So let's go ahead and move to the main event. Obviously, the AEW Championship on the line. MJF defending against Adam Cole. Cole got a normal entrance, though apparently his gear made reference to a video game character, and people suggested that meant he was going to turn heel. I didn't know anything about that. MJF came out in his devil mask on a throne, like elevated with people bowing to him. It was the type of entrance you give to your number one guy in case there were any questions still about the, you know, 2024 contract deal. Uh, They stood off after the bell, then left the ring and put on their tag team shirts. MJF got the crowd chanting sportsmanship. Then he poked Cole in the eye after a fake handshake. Then he helped Cole up only to get smacked. Cole ripped off MJF's shirt. MJF was full babyface here. He even did a tope suicida, and he sold the shock that it actually worked. MJF failed trying Panama Sunrise and ate a heat seeker, getting his foot on the rope to break the fall. Colvin hit a brainbuster into the steel steps. The corner of it cut a huge hole in MJF's shoulder. Max couldn't bring himself to Tombstone Pile Drive Cole on the announce table, literally just placing him down. Cole didn't hesitate. He put him right onto the table with a Tombstone Pile Driver himself seconds later. Then he had a Canadian Destroyer with MJF hitting a head kick as he collapsed selling it, which was a really great spot. They stood across from each other and called for a double clothesline, running the ropes, ducking each other, and then clotheslining each other with an arm draped over their chest as the referee counted for a double one, two, three, and a draw, which meant MJF would retain the title. Justin Roberts made that announcement. Cole grabbed the mic. He demanded five more minutes in a callback to their prior match. MJF said no, five minutes was not enough. They were going until they got a fucking winner at Wembley, quote unquote. Seconds later, Cole accidentally ran into the referee and MJF started laughing. They tossed a chair back and forth, each trying to do the Eddie Guerrero spot. Cole took a dive, so MJF put the chair around his neck and laid down to outsmart him. He baited Cole into a roll-up, then he hit Heat Seeker for a 2.9 false finish. Cole hit a straight jacket German suplex on the apron and Panama Sunrise outside. Then MJF pulled the referee in his way for a Panama Sunrise inside on the referee, to be clear. Uh, He pulled out the dynamite diamond ring, but he was conflicted about using it, put it back in his tights. So Roderick Strong appeared behind him, low-blowed him, yelled at Cole to cover. Cole was surprised, but he did capitalize, hitting MJF with Panama Sunrise, and then the boom, but there was no one to cover immediately. A late delayed count by the referee went to a 2.5 false finish. 
Strong threw the title to Cole, demanding he use it, saying, I'm your best friend, not him. Cole finally removed his shirt, but he couldn't use the title, so Strong stormed out. MJF then caught Cole coming back around with a small package, retaining the title in 29 minutes. After the bell, MJF put down the title, crawled over to Cole, said he got lucky, and he grabbed the tag team titles. Cole threw them out of the ring. MJF then screamed at him for being a fake piece of shit, never caring about him. He threw Cole the title, the AEW title, and stood with his back with his arms out saying, you know, hit me. I was stupid for trusting you. Strong ran back down, screaming at Cole again to do it. But Cole threw the title down, and then they ran together for a hug. Their tag team music hit, and a bunch of pyro and um, confetti and smoke went off, and all and ended with friendship. This was pretty damn perfect, Chris. Uh, There was ultimately no heel turn, but the way the story was told with both guys fighting against their heel instincts only for it to cost each of them time and again, it enhanced the already high-quality wrestling that we got throughout the bout. The tag team title win in the opener, it was largely unnecessary to tell this story. Like you could have done everything that happened in the main event without them winning the tag team titles, but it certainly didn't hurt that much. I'm going to go 4.75 stars and an A+. The reason I'm not going a full five is because it was a bit overbooked with the double clothesline silliness, the restart, interferences, delays, the referee spot, the small package. It was a lot to happen in a single match, and I did want a little bit more of a satisfying victory. But this was executed to perfection with the right winner and the right finishing sequence. It certainly doesn't hurt that I went 2-0 in my predictions, with the exception, of course, of Cole turning heel, which he did not. And we discussed in the Ultimate Preview how a heel turn with the babyface still winning would have been very difficult for them to pull off. This has now, as far as I'm concerned, become AEW's best storyline in its history, better than what they did with the Elite. I realize... That was more complicated. It was longer. It was more emotional. I get that. For my taste, I'm enjoying this more. I wouldn't say I'm emotionally invested in it, but that's because so much of it is comedy and they aren't trying to tug at my heartstrings. They're just trying to entertain me. But it was the perfect main event for the show. The right decisions were made. And best of all, we go forward with the story continuing. Not to mention the the end finish where the two guys competed are celebrating with each other. That's a SummerSlam 1992 callback at Wembley Stadium. The same thing, similarly, with Brett Far, uh, Brett Hart. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Well, T- 20-second timeout. Did you almost call him Brett Fart? Because if you did, yeah. that would have been hysterical. Okay, go ahead. No, I was going to say, Bre- I almost said Brett Favre. Oh, oh, oh okay. Brett <laughs> uh, <laughs> this was, I enjoyed the hell out of this, man. Like, it, the, the double clothesline draw totally got me. I, like, didn't see that coming until it started. I was like, holy crap. And I'm curious where it's going to go. I know you always knock a grade down a little bit when there's a lot of shenanigans at the end of a match, but the shenanigans are always my favorite part. Oh, they were entertaining as hell. Yeah. 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 That's like, oh, something's happening. Something's going on here. Ronnie Strong's interfering. Cole's turning on MJF. But just I I love that stuff, that, that uncertainty, that panic, that not knowing what's going on. MJF was the face in this match like the entire time. He barely did any heel type of stuff. Every time he could have, he didn't. Cole was the one who would follow through and do those types of things. The brain bust around the stairs, my God, man, that was brutal for both of them. It kind of looked like Cole even took the worst of it, even though MJF's the one who got cut on it. Uh, That that was a pretty gnarly 
thing there. But again, MJF being a face, him being the one to say, we want a winner in fucking Wembley and just all the stuff playing to the crowd the whole time. Like he is the top face in the company, even though he's not exactly a, a, a face. I did. I, I did kind of like laugh a little bit when Adam Cole hit the Canadian destroyer on the referee, mm-hmm. because that was an unusual ref bump. The idea that like he couldn't stop himself after landing on the ground, he had to complete the move. I, I it was a little bit much, but, but uh, that, that was funny. Adam Cole's facial expressions continue. I've always been like his best trait. Like, and he just sold shock and, and frustration and different things all the time. Also thought Cole looked good, by the way, once he took the shirt off toward the end, mm-hmm. I know we often wrestles in a shirt and he kind of looked, I don't know, a little flabby back in late NXT days, but he looked good. He looks good. So props to him for that. And the finish, I was fine with it. I was a little annoyed that it was the second kind of roll up small package type of finish we got on the show. Mm -hmm. That kind of surprised me. I'm surprised they didn't do it differently in the, six man tag earlier if you're gonna if this is how you you were gonna end right the main event right because the crowd kind of reacts and then no one no one knows what to do after that it's not a it's not a elevating finish and so people were kind of just sitting there for a minute then you have the post-match throw stuff at each other type of thing i thought mjf should have had the mic for that so the whole stadium could understand what they were saying to each other um but ultimately it ends with everybody celebrating cheering happy like that's exactly how you want to send people home if you're not going to have like one guy you know i'm champion as your final image your final image is these two guys hugging each other and it's a great way to send it out so like this has been really really fun i've seen a lot of people say it's very nxt of them and that this match was very nxt the yeah some the finishes were yes they were yeah and and you can say that but like it all gets over like it all works i'm this is this is the best storyline they've ever done. This, you got to have some stories to this, even if it's corny, like something else for people to kind of sink their teeth into. And that's what we got here. And it, it will continue. And I'm curious where it goes. And these guys on one of the biggest stages in the history of wrestling delivered an extremely entertaining and fun match. So kudos to them. Yeah, I mean, you know, as long as everyone contextualizes that match for what it was supposed to be, it, it was not supposed to be a work rate banger, right? Where like you're showing just the best possible in-ring wrestling that you can get. We got a lot of really good in-ring wrestling, but they were telling a story. And again, their feud and their storyline includes a lot of comedy. So if you're doing a match in the main event of a show like this, and you're appealing to the 81,000 people that you have in the stadium, and you're trying to continue the story that you've been telling, then you're not going to just get a very serious, you know, Gunther, Ilya Dragunov five-star banger. That's not the match you're getting. You're getting what we got. And I thought for that reason, they absolutely delivered every single thing that we could have asked for them in this match. There's really not much else to say, I think. I think we can just move on because there's really, like, we know the storyline's continuing. We could discuss how it's going to continue. I mean, it does seem like there's probably going to be a Ring of Honor tag team title feud with MJF and Cole against the Kingdom and Roderick Strong will probably... I would assume help Kingdom win those titles. Does Cole get another match with MJF at the next pay-per-view? Does he actually turn heel in the ensuing couple of months? There's a lot of different ways that they can go with it. But the fact that it's continuing, you know, look, you know, it's very different than like the Roman Reigns bloodline storyline. Okay. But people were really angry that WWE didn't pull the trigger with Cody Rhodes at WrestleMania and that the storyline continued. However, 
in the short period of time since WrestleMania, there have been a number of things that have happened with the bloodline that have been great. Now, the difference is that's a three-year storyline. This is like a three-month storyline. So, you know, we're in, we're in different like realms here. But the point is, as long as what succeeds the major match is as good or better than the outcome that would have been achieved if it was ended on the big show, then it's a success. We don't know the answer for the bloodline of Roman Reigns. We don't know the answer for Cole and MJF. Yeah, I saw some people saying Cole MJF two at Wembley next year. I mean, maybe that's really far away. I don't think you can do this for another year. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Like, there's not as much. There's not like it's comedy. There's not as much story behind it, which is fine. Like, I, I don't, I don't know where it goes, but the fact that you can do a lot of comedy in a main event like that and it'd be over as hell is a testament to the trust that all the fans have in the people involved and the story being told. Like. It's fine if it's comedy if we're invested in it, and we are. Right. And so we'll see where that goes. And yeah, just again, kudos to MJF again, a guy who opened the first all-in as a young kid. Now he gets the main event this show. Adam Cole, who never got his big WWE moment. You know, he was- Well, that was his choice, but yeah. I mean, that was his call. That was his decision, but yeah. No, right, right, right. And so to to, to decide to go somewhere else and to get the main event to a Wembley show with 90,000 total people there, really cool for both those guys. Decision paid off for Cole. It was, you know, whether it was the right decision, who knows? Yes. You could never know because you don't know what would have happened in WWE, but it definitely wasn't the wrong decision, is fair to say at this point. Uh, let's move to the women's championship. Akaru Shida against Britt Baker, Tony Storm, and Soraya in a fatal four-way match. Now, first preceding this, we had Shida and Baker against Storm and Soraya. On our ultimate preview, I gave AEW credit for putting this match on collision. So the storyline had a bunch of time to develop. They could do a big go-home moment. Somehow... I missed it wasn't on Collision. It was on Rampage, which should have told me what to expect at All In itself. Uh, Chris Statlander removed Ruby Soho from ringside early. Storm sprayed Sheeta. Baker super kicked Storm. Sheeta punched Baker while blinded and Soraya hit Britt with Rampage for the win. Then the heels tugged at the title and then held it up together. It was fine. With all the effort they put into all the men's storylines for All In, this should have been on Collision number one and something a lot more exciting should have happened in the post-match, but that kind of bleeds into what happened at All In. Let's get to that match. This was the mid-show feature. Soraya came out to We Will Rock You by Queen. That was referencing their Wembley Stadium appearance at Live Aid in 1985. It would have been a little bit cooler if she actually dressed like Freddie Mercury, but it was still cool. Go watch that, by the way, if you've never seen it. Uh, The Outcast started arguing 90 seconds into the match. Then Soraya's mom helped Tony in a spot, only to accidentally get punched in the face. So then they fought with Soraya getting full babyface cheers in London, as she should have. Ruby sprinted down to stop a hip attack, saying that Tony could have broken Soraya's neck if she did it. So Tony punched her in the face and Ruby left. All of that was in the first five minutes of the match. Baker stomped Tony while she was in a submission for a false finish. As Baker was then attempting to put Sheeta in the lockjaw, Soraya sprayed Storm in the face with the green stuff and hit her with Rampage, which is now called the Nightmare to win the AEW women's title in nine minutes. Her family immediately jumped into the ring to celebrate with her. She got pyro over the top of the stadium and a huge ovation from the crowd. So the second we heard Queen and Soraya's family walked out with her, winning the title was a foregone conclusion. There's a lot of positives and negatives here. Positives. End of the outcast, or at least the beginning of an interfaction feud, a big moment for a notable female wrestler, even if she has not been great since joining AEW. 
I get why people were angry about it being Soraya saying she doesn't deserve it. That's true. But it was a massive pop, probably the right call, at least as the result is, you know, chosen. Also, Tony was the easy MVP, not just for her wrestling, but like her antics throughout. She was very, very funny here. Mm -hmm. But the match was just okay. Almost nothing happened. 2.5 stars in a C. It was such a short window. And that's where the negatives start. This was the only women's match on the card. And it was the shortest match on the entire 11 match card. I would say the second shortest, if you include the uh, zero hour, which is the 11. We barely got to see them perform. The match time was 50% filled with outcast storyline. So there was only like four or five minutes of actual in-ring action. Plus, you have Sheeta used as a transitional champion. She was the least important thing of the entire match. She was less important than Ruby Soho was. The division is just in shambles. And the title itself feels completely meaningless, even if we did have a great moment for Soraya. Yeah, I mean, we can separate the larger issues with the women's division from the match. I I enjoyed the match. I I, I liked what they got. There was storyline. There was some good wrestling. I just would have liked more. You know, obviously throw five more minutes out of that would have been really nice. Um, but but it, it was good. I did not think Soraya coming out with her family and we will rock you guaranteed to win. I wasn't sure if just that was the moment they were going to give us. And I, I, I said coming into the show that you have to create the moments, the images mm-hmm. from that. Soraya, yeah. everything she's been through, her career being cut short at such a young age, being able to come back and win a title at Wembley Stadium with her family there. That's freaking cool, man. That is awesome. And the, the part where she stands up on the turnbuckle and raises the belt as the camera pans and the music crescendos and the fireworks go off. That was the moment. Mm-hmm. They nailed that moment. That whole thing, that production, all of that. They nailed that. Then when she's sitting in the ring crying afterward, like you could feel that. So I, I, I enjoyed this. I would have liked it a lot more. I said on the preview, my pick was Soraya, and my pick was that it's a short title reign, perhaps losing it all out or something, which is fine. Who knows what the future is? Obviously, uh, a certain somebody was in the crowd. Uh, we'll talk but, about that in a moment. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, cool moment. Fun match. Definitely would have liked more. Whether or not you think Soraya deserves it at this moment, I don't care, man. Like, that was just, that was really cool. She deserves it for getting back here. And that's enough for me at a show like this. I think for people, it's more about she's been really poor in the ring and and the outcasts have not worked. And Sheeta is beloved and got a transitional title reign when like people just wanted her to win the title. Like it was very clear and obvious when Sheeta randomly beat Storm on a special show. They were doing that to try to just do a title change on a special show. And now it's a transitional champion for Soraya. But that didn't piss me off. Can I tell you what really bothered me about this? So Tony Khan. Sure shells out who the hell knows how much money to get We Will Rock You by Queen for Soraya, right? Great move. She wins the title and they didn't buy the rights to We Are the Champions for her exit. How <laughs> how the fuck could you buy We Will Rock You and not buy We Are the Champions? In fact, I think in many ways they come together as one song. Who knows about the licensing rights? But she won a title in her home country 
at Wembley Stadium. They already played Queen. He bought the rights to a Metallica song later in the show. They made gobs and gobs of money. And beyond that, he's a billionaire. How could you not double up? Am I crazy? <laughs> uh, that makes sense. I mean, I don't know how much individually they Who cost, cares? Who to, cares what to, it was? To that point, all of that, they're like, I, having um, having Soraya's family involved in that, in the entrance, and then her getting involved in the match briefly for a minute there, too. I just, I thought that was a cool way to do everything, so... Uh, th- this this was something I'll remember from the show, even if there are larger issues at hand. Yes, that is, this is one of the things for sure I will remember. And that's important in the context of we talk all the time. And you mentioned it earlier. AEW, they don't really have moments. And WWE is all about no. moments. AEW doesn't really have them. This was one of them. And good for them for succeeding doing it. Lastly, as we look ahead to uh, All Out, the champion never got pinned. So rolling with Soraya Shida next week, that would make a lot of sense. You can even have Storm interfere, start that feud, do the outcast thing, outcast triple threat, a lot of different things they can do. Now, before we move on with the rest of the card, you mentioned it. Uh, there was a special someone in the crowd. Mercedes Monet was shown during zero hour and again twice during the trios match. She was referred to as a seven time world champion. So my thought initially was they showed her early so all the Sasha Banks fans would buy the show before she debuted whether signed or not, after the women's title match. Mm -hmm. Now, some argued that they killed the momentum by showing Mercedes in the crowd. I thought it was good business, except they didn't deliver her in the ring or have her stand up and point at Soraya or do anything. Even if she's still injured, she can walk. Like she, she She can walk down the ramp. She can do a couple things. And if Mercedes had come out, after Soraya's big celebration, it would have been a moment, like on top of the moment of her just winning the title. Instead, Excalibur reminded us after the bell that Mercedes was in attendance and to look out for that. And that was it. And like I said, they showed her again later. So now I really don't know what to think. If she's not signed and not going to sign, then okay, they used her in appropriate way. If she's going to show up, let's say Wednesday on Dynamite or maybe at All Out after that match, and get a huge pop in Chicago, I'd say that she shouldn't have been here at all. Either way, it's a really interesting development because she is signed to New Japan Pro Wrestling for a certain number of matches, and indications had been made that once that deal ended, she was seriously considering actually going back to WWE. I cannot imagine, though, Mercedes watching AEW on a weekly basis, seeing how the women are treated on television, watching the match that they had at all in and thinking, yeah, AEW, that's the place in the United States for me to shine. Like, I don't see how you could watch this match on AEW's biggest show ever and think that Tony has any commitment to the women's division. Even if he tells you, well, if you come in, I'm going to start caring about it. It's like, are, are you really? And, and how much more time are you going to give us, right? Like, we're still in the same spot that we've been last year, the year before, the year after that. They occasionally have their own moments. The women, every once in a while, two times a year, maybe, something cool happens. But they're a forgettable part of the show. So I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, if she does sign full-time with AEW, I will be surprised, not because I don't think it's impossible, but more just because I, I don't know why she would go there. If she remains with New Japan and does like the Will Ospreay thing where she occasionally wrestles in AEW and just signs for individual matches or short periods of time, whatever, 
That would make more sense to me. Yeah, I saw her pop up in the pre-show and I was like, oh, damn, they're kind of ruining the spoiler. And I like I totally get, oh, she's going to show up later. So do it now to get the Sasha Banks fans to pay and watch. I'm like, all right, I get the business. It's like when they announced the John Cena coming back thing. OK, I get it for business, but um, maybe hold off. But for this, we didn't end up even getting her again. <laughs> so that was weird. I, I don't know. And then they only went back to her in the trios match. The House of Black acclaimed match, which was random. Uh, so I don't know what's going on with this. But but to your point, like AW's women's division is loaded, just loaded with a lot of people, and they get very little out of it. Jade Cargill's probably gonna come back at some point, you know, like she's, she's just like, is there enough room? I don't know, but I don't think you bring her to the show and put her on your thing and talk about her. No, clearly there's something planned. If you're not planning yeah. something. Yeah. So there's something. So what I'm just saying is, is she signed? Is she going to sign full time or is she going to sign? Or is she just going to wrestle there occasionally again? Kind of like Will Ospreay. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that that feels like the most natural. Yeah. She's definitely going to wrestle model as opposed to being AEW full time. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think at, at at least do it to like dip your toe. Like, OK, hey, I'm going to come in. I'm going to do these three things, whatever the case. Yeah. See how it goes. See if the women while you're there get more time and are treated better. And if they're not, then don't go. But, you know, we'll find out. So let's move on to the real world championship. CM Punk against Samoa Joe. On Collision, Joe said he was warned if he got involved in the main event, there would be consequences. So he decided to join commentary so everyone could keep an eye on him. He also said he was satisfied he got the match he wanted and promised to hand Punk the ass kicking he needed. So I guess Joe's the babyface in this entire thing. We got Punk, Darby Allen, Sting, and Hook. Again, Swerve Strickland, Brian Cage, Luchasaurus, and Jay White. There were like a half dozen people at ringside, plus Joe on commentary. We got signature and finisher spam in like an eight-man match, as you usually get. Uh, Punk hit Cage with GTS while staring at Joe, then beat him with the Coquina Clutch. Joe confirmed that the match was officially over and attacked Punk as part of a 12-person brawl. Sting beat the shit out of Swerve during this. It was all okay, but Joe was hysterical after the match. He's like, this is officially done, right? Like, I can beat the shit out of this guy. I loved that from Samoa Joe. He's always so funny uh, from talking and stuff like that. So anyway, the match at All In, Punk, Joe. This opened the main card. Joe took a hurricanrana and landed straight on his head, then did a infamous walk away during a Punk crossbody attempt outside. Then Joe caught Punk flying and literally swung him through the base of the announce table, where Punk bladed while inside. This confirmed Joe as the babyface in the match, so the blade job, the first blade job on the show came five minutes into the match, 12 minutes into the broadcast. Punk escaped the muscle buster. Punk then did Hulk Hogan's leg drop and Joe did Hogan's point. I presume these were WrestleMania three references due to the attendance stuff because of course. Then Punk did a Terry Funk toehold reference, but got caught running for a Uranagi. Uh, the finish came as Punk bit Joe's forehead on the top rope and hit an avalanche Pepsi plunge for the win in 14 minutes. This was his ring of honor finisher, by the way. He was declared still the real world champion after the bell. Loved the finishing move, keeping Joe strong. I liked most of the match. They did lose me for like four minutes doing all the Hogan stuff just to give a middle finger to WWE. I'm going 3.75 stars and a B plus boosted by the Pepsi plunge and the table sequence. Some notable moments for sure and some callbacks to their prior matches as well. 
Yeah, first thing I wrote down is that's a new way to break a table uh, with the announce table going through the side. And then that came back into play later with the main event when you couldn't break the table from above. So I was like, oh, that's an interesting way to do it. And also a weird place to blade uh, from a table or something like that. But but, but, but sure. Um, the Hulk Hogan WrestleMania stuff, it felt like WrestleMania 18. It kind of seemed like they were doing. Um, that was fine. It was fun. Punk was playing from below the whole time, but he was he was clearly the 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 one the crowd disliked. Punk uh, Joe was just playing fighting this from top the whole time, kind of being more heelish, but the crowd was into it. They just wanted to see Punk get his ass kicked. So mm-hmm. so it ends up working. Then you do a quick finish, Pepsi plunge, uh, cool call back to bring that back. Um, and yeah, it was fun, good match fine stuff we'll talk about the other punk stuff later but uh i i really like the intro to this too as someone who generally knows but doesn't really know the joe punk history i love the promo video beforehand to kind of give us that backstory and everything um so kudos to AEW for that as well and we'll see if punk holds on to his real world championship again or not but uh yeah this was fine good opener yeah no doubt and like you said we will talk more about punk before this show is out Tag Team Championship FTR against Young Bucks 3. On Collision, there was a dual promo package with them talking about the FTR moniker as the centerpiece of their feud. They basically repeated exactly what they said on Dynamite. And this match wound up being third on the main card. It also featured the best sign on All In, which said, Fear the Revolver, right? Dead center in the front row. Kudos (laughs) to you, sir. That was a great sign. Uh, FTR wore armbands for Bray Wyatt, Brody Lee, and Jay Briscoe. Dax Harwood hit a slingshot Liger bomb. Then FTR got stereo sharpshooters. There was a Bucks superplex, followed by both teammates failing on splashes and eating double knees. FTR hit an assisted spike pile driver. The Bucks bumped knees on an avoided BTE trigger. Cash Wheeler then hit a tope spear on Nick Jackson. FTR did the FTR trigger, kissing Matt and hitting Shatter Machine for a false finish. Cash missed a springboard 450. The Bucks hit BTE trigger with Matt selling a knee. Dax stood up with a facial expression knowing he was about to get double teamed. They hit him with Shatter Machine and then hit Cash with BTE Trigger for a false finish. The Bucks then set up for a Melter Driver only for Dax to jump in the ring and catch Nick with Shatter Machine for the 1-2-3 to retain the titles in 21 minutes. FTR offered their hands after the bell only for the Bucks to dump out of the ring. I was really mixed on this match and not because what seemed to be obvious did not happen. That doesn't really matter. It was just one of those situations where for me, if you've seen it once, you've seen it a hundred times. Maybe that's because the Bucks don't wrestle the style I enjoy, but it just didn't feel like anything that happened here was the least bit memorable or special, which was not the case for the FTR Briscoes feud or the Bucks Lucha Brothers, uh, you know, matches that they had. I have specific memories of those matches, whereas this I'm never going to think about again. I'm at 4.25 stars in an A. And that's actually me giving a bonus quarter star because I'm usually low on Bucks matches. It definitely delivered as part of their series, but I just didn't think it was anything that special. First off, like the last match, I really like the promo video here on their history. I loved explaining the origins of FTR and leaning into that. That was a cool thing to do. A shout out to Cody in there. That got me more into this match really than anything else that had happened between these two up to this point recently. Um, and you asked why Soraya was addressed as Freddie Mercury. The box were, so mm. I guess somebody did it and, and, and did it there. Um, this match was interesting and it plays into a larger feeling I have about the show in a good way, which I'll explain at the end. 
but it felt like unlike most aw pay-per-views it didn't feel like every single match was trying to be the greatest match in wrestling history and to that extent these two teams just kind of did their things and did it in a in a good way with some kickouts with some good false finishes and i like the finish the finishing sequence i thought was really good only issue was that nobody could seem to hit a good shatter machine for whatever reason. They all <laughs> I know. Were like I noticed that. Kneeing everybody in the, they were all kneeing everybody in the chest. But I thought this was a perfectly fine match. Not not the best match between these two. Not one I'll probably go back and even watch. But I actually think that helped the show. I think that was good for the card to not have that, considering everything else that was happening, considering what happened after this match with Stadium Stampede. Um, so it was fine nothing amazing but in the context of the card i actually thought it worked really well notable that the cmftr group went two and oh at all in while the newly re-signed elite went oh and two on the show that they literally created uh beyond cash's arrest for aggravated assault with a firearm it would have been pretty poetic for the bucks to win the tag team titles back at their own show i presume There are storytelling plans in place, and that's the reason why FTR did not drop the titles here. But you have to admit, it would have made a ton of sense for it to happen in this spot for all those reasons that I just mentioned. So let's go ahead, uh, keep going with Chris Jericho and Will Ospreay. Uh, Jericho and Fozzie performed his entrance, which started with Jericho doing the Freddie Mercury uh, call and response with the crowd from also the same where when Queen played Live Aid at Wembley Stadium in 1985. As I mentioned, the same show referenced in Soraya's entrance. Again, watch that if you have not seen it. One of the best stadium concert performances of all time. Uh, this was a really cool moment for Jericho as a musician. He's always going to get to say he played Wembley Stadium. That's pretty cool. Uh, Osprey started yep, yep. with a uh, sky twister and phenomenal forearm just a couple moments in. Then he took a nasty German suplex on the ring apron. Osprey came back with a draping shooting star press. Jericho countered Ozcutter with a code breaker, first to his back, then to his front. And then he hit Ozcutter, but Jericho countered Stormbreaker with a sick flip over, locking in walls of Jericho. Don Callis yelled at the referee. That gave Sammy Guevara an opening to drill Osprey in the head with a bat. The referee did the arm drop thing twice in this case and just continued the match. Osprey hit a Spanish fly. Jericho botched an Ozcutter of his own. Jericho then hit a mule kick, low blow, and Judas effect with a delayed cover for a false finish. Osprey came back with Hidden Blade and Stormbreaker for another false finish. Jericho sat up. He knew he was done. He pointed to his chin saying, let me see it. And Osprey hit a second hidden blade and then a second Stormbreaker to get the win in 15 minutes. Sammy lifted Chris up after the bell, but Jericho lightly pushed him away, pretty much just disappointed in himself. This was actually for me, the match of the night at the time it ended. Now, MJF and Adam Cole exceeded that in the main event, but at the time it ended, this was my match of the night. Osprey carried it as you would think, but Jericho kept up best he could and delivered for, I would say like, 90 to 95% of the match. The finish was a version of the Shawn Michaels Undertaker, you know, type of spot. And it was great because Jericho basically put Osprey over double. And the post-match with Jericho pushing away Guevara, that may have been Chris like unsure if he still deserves to be seen as a mentor or a leader or anything like that. That could lead to a long-term feud between them. It could lead to Sammy and JAS like lifting him back up and them all turning babyface. Extremely well done. This was an A for me. I'm between 4.25 and 4.5. I'll probably watch it again because it was good and I'll decide. But an A match either way. 
I'd probably give it like a four. I thought it was a really solid match. I saw you tweeted that it was match of the night and it didn't jump out to me like that, but it, it was a very good match, a lot better than maybe the worst case scenario we worried about coming in considering just Jericho's age and his ability and moving whatnot. It was a lot of Osprey moving around him, but it, it, it worked. The entrances to start were great. Osprey was flying early, mm-hmm. going off those ropes, going a mile a minute. I think I I would have moved this up to 4.5-ish, and it easily could have gotten there if they didn't if they just didn't rush a couple of things and miss a couple of mm-hmm. moments. When a, after Osprey gets hit by the by um Sammy and he's laying there. And, and Aubrey lifts his arm for one. For one, his arm is like tucked behind him. Yeah. So she's got to do the big lift the arm scene, but it's underneath Chris. He couldn't Jericho's have even butt, done so the he spot. Couldn't yeah, he couldn't even do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. because And then she does it as she's trying to do it a second time. He has to move his arm to kind of like leverage himself. Right. And so you just you didn't get that. You didn't get that spot. on. And then I thought the end was just rushed a little bit like Jericho kicks out and stuff and he gets up and he's doing the defiant thing to Osprey. But if Osprey just waited a couple more seconds, right. let Jericho really express that and the camera can turn and cut to him, then you the camera, you go to the hard camp at that point, and then you get the hit finish at the end, and then you get the one, two, three. And it, it's just a little thing that like that's the big climactic moment of the match, and they just rushed it a little bit. But other than that, I mean, still really, really good match between these two. We'll see about Osprey's future, obviously, with his, with his contract coming up feels like uh, a guy you would put near the top of the company if you get him. So really cool for him to, again, get this moment and, and enjoy the spotlight. His moment, while Soraya's, ent- while Soraya's win was kind of her entrance, uh, her moment, Osprey's entrance was kind of his moment because he wins and then basically gets out of the ring right. after after like a minute or so because they got to do the Jericho Sammy thing. So uh, we'll see. With, with that, I thought we might get Sammy or Jericho full on turning on the other one, but, but didn't, uh, but still good stuff overall. Just for a mention on the Osprey contract thing, since we probably won't mention it again, unless he does sign with AEW. Um, I would be way, way, way more surprised than Mercedes. If Osprey primarily signed with AEW, I, I mean, he's a new Japan guy. He's being built up as the yeah. guy, the guy Jin, uh, over there. Uh, right. I do think he'll continue to wrestle in AEW as he should. And it's great that Tony, has that flexibility and can use him two, three, four times a year. That's incredible. But it, for me, would make no sense for him not to remain primarily with NJPW as his main employer. So I just want to say that. You mentioned Mercedes real quick. While we're recording, Tony Khan said at the press conference that Mercedes is not cleared for wrestling. He said that many times and that uh, it was cool to have her. So we'll see about that. Her future, who knows? Omega's, uh, I'm sorry, Osprey's future. We'll see. Uh, Mercedes was originally scheduled for Forbidden Door, obviously before the injury. So I, it seems right. like they're trying to do something where they just want to get her on TV so people know she's coming. And then when she's healthy, they'll start utilizing her. Now, when that's going to be, who the hell knows? Probably not next week for All Out, but we'll have to see going forward. Uh, Kenny Omega, Hangman Page, and Kota Ibushi fought Konosuke Takeshka, Jay White, and Juice Robinson. This was second on the show and surprisingly chaotic early with the guns involved frequently at ringside. Tagging was completely non-existent. It was basically a tornado match. Ibushi slipped on a moonsault outside, but then had a nice sequence with White. Omega and Takeshka went at it with a blue thunderbomb V-trigger and a great poison run by Kenny. Uh, then he did great tandem offense with Hangman Page before Page 
took Takeshka off the top with, I think it was an avalanche blockbuster. We got a signature spam next before Takeshka countered Kamagoye with a pump knee in an awesome spot. Page caught Takeshka blind with a buckshot lariat to the back of his head. Omega then went wild with V-triggers because people kept jumping in the ring, um, interrupting like an attempted tope con hero, only for Takeshka to use Omega's momentum against him for a surprise roll-up victory in 21 minutes. Now look, I'm actually going to go with, uh, let's say, 3.5 stars for the match, which it may sound low just because of the talent that's involved here, but I actually think it's right. This didn't start as hot as I would have hoped. There's no question the final few minutes were good. Something that hit me really hard is I already like the Don Callis Takeshka pairing and the brown note, like ominous tone music that plays, but the finish was so sudden and so shocking that hearing that play over the Wembley Stadium PA with Callis and Takeshka having shit-eating grins on their faces, I thought it came across awesome. There were people who said it was a downer and it was really bad. It's supposed to be. To me, that came off great. I don't think I can give extra credit for it, but I just, I liked it. I enjoyed it. Ibushi also looked way better here than he did in Blood and Guts. He's still not all the way back to himself, but he looked better. Uh, This did not rise, though, to being a potential show stealer. And that's what I expected coming in. We did get to see some high-level work from some really talented wrestlers, and the roll-up came at the perfect surprise point to shock the crowd most. This is going to result in Omega Takeshka at All Out. I said that would happen on the Ultimate Preview. I'm not saying that was some crazy prediction, but it made the most sense. That's why the finish went the way it did. Takeshka got got the cheap win. Omega then gets the clean one-on-one win next week. Really, the only bad part of this match was Jim Ross on commentary. He was awful. Well... Yes, but to be fair, you must have loved when he said, I have no idea who the legal man is. And Nigel <laughs> yes. chimed in with Rick Knox has lost control. Yes, of course. There was a, there was that. The finish, in hindsight especially, finishing with a sudden roll-up package, whatever, when that was your main event MJF Cole finish was odd. And roll-up finishes play a weird, a weird place in modern wrestling discourse because we all think of it from the booking decision we're not like we're not shocked that bullet club won we're shocked that bullet club gold won via roll-up you know like it's just you don't have the you know the, those old clips from the 80s when uh macho man Randy, uh, ricky steamboat when you have one of those types of finishes and people pop crazy for the roll-up surprise finish you don't really get that mm-hmm. now so it was just, it was weird. The crowd was kind of in shock and dead because of that. But like you said, that is kind of the point. It was very funny. The camera right up next to Hangman and he just goes, what the fuck? <laughs> that, was, that was really funny. It, it punctuated the moment of what that was. And I already said, I liked the tunnel for the entrances. This was the coolest tunnel entrance. Oh, really? For, uh, for, for the guns to be there for Juice Robinson to be on the ground and you're going into the tunnel as Jay is like moving his jacket and showing off his abs and you're coming out the tunnel with them with the camera. I thought that was really, really well done. So props to, again, production for that. Interesting. I thought Tony Storm had the best tunnel entrance, just personally. I thought hers was really, really cool. But okay, you know, I mean, that's, it, it was that's cool too. as well. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, the roll-ups thing, look, I think people really hate it because WWE for a long time totally overused it. But the reason I don't like roll-ups is because there are so many other different options when it comes to pinning combinations. 
inside cradles, small packages, jackknife covers, like, you know, uh, crucifix pin, like there's so, seatbelt. There's so many different things you can do and get the same result, but it's an actual wrestling move as opposed to just rolling someone up. But in this case, based on the way the match finished and he used his momentum and he really put leverage onto it, I thought it was fine. I, I, I didn't think it was a bad decision, but yes, um, the heels winning, I think, I don't remember if you predicted it. I definitely predicted it because it made sense for Takeshka to win and Omega to then fight him one-on-one -on -one next week. It's a little annoying that the Omega Takeshka match, which is a bigger deal, is on the smaller card or the, the least important card. But, you know, whatever. It's still all out. Tony is trying to sell tickets and pay-per-view buys and Omega Takeshka one-on-one -on -one should do that. Whereas if they flipped them, it probably wouldn't have sold as many doing the six-man on that show. Uh, Eddie Kingston, Orange Cassidy, Best Friends, and Penta L0M fought Blackpool Combat Club Santana and Ortiz in Stadium Stampede. First on collision, Orange, Pentagon, and Kingston fought Kip Sabian, Butcher, and Blade. Sabian ate an orange punch into Fear Factor plus a driving elbow from Eddie for the babyface win. Best Friends joined after commercial. Trent was upset the heels ruined Sue's van, and she got a chant. The heels appeared on screen with John Moxley reminding Kingston he made the challenge and let them pick their partner so he shouldn't be surprised. So Eddie charged backstage. He couldn't find them. He cut a promo into the camera saying he would gut Santana and Ortiz, and he didn't want to hurt Mox because he likes his wife, and he promised to save Claudio for last so he could hunt him and burn him. Eddie is the best. Nothing else here mattered, uh, but Kingston was outstanding. So we get to the match on uh, All In. Kingston came out wearing a Patrick Ewing jersey, my favorite basketball player. So obviously that popped me when one of my favorite wrestlers is wearing my favorite basketball player's jersey. Uh, Penta jammed a ton of skewers into the top of Mox's head because of course he did. Then he hit him with Made in Japan. Orange oh. did his bullshit only for Mox to grab a fork, stab him in the head and bite him. Mox did a brain buster on Orange into a chair, then raked barbed wire across Trent's face before PNP powerbombed him into a ladder with Mox, then putting him into a barbed wire board. So that's it, pin him, match is over, right? Wrong. Uh, Trent was then pile driven into steel steps. Orange was completely opened up by Ortiz with a fork. Trent was getting his ass kicked more on the stage. When Sue drove up in a white van she somehow brought with her to London, Mox reached in the window and kissed her. So she starts handing out baking trays to best friends so they could rebound as they were really getting their ass kicked in the first half of the match. I'd have liked to have seen her like give them snacks and they eat them and get energy from them, but that's fine. Uh, Penta earlier took a pile driver into a chair and was removed from the match, but he came back five minutes later as Penta Oscuro having changed his gear from black to red. Then as he was on a wood ladder, the fucking ladder broke, he falls off. Somehow he's able to climb the ladder without rungs because he's an absolute insane person, gets to the top, it's a sunset flip powerbomb, off of it into two tables, completely saved the sequence. Yuda missed a screwdriver uh, spot and it got stuck in the turnbuckle pad. Claudio swung orange 25 times, Trenton Ortiz, went through tables with a superplex at ringside. Cassidy hit three orange punches on Claudio, um, but didn't result in anything. So he got duct tape and a bucket of glass. He wrapped duct tape around his hand backward so it was sticky, dumped it into the bucket of glass. Um, then Mox didn't like it, so he kicked the bucket, the glass spilled. He ate a tornado DDT into it. Claudio hit a pop-up European uppercut. Kingston then charged down with a barbed wire chair and a bloodied head. Eddie killed Claudio with the chair and then Mox stopped him. So Eddie backfisted both of them and drove Mox backwards into a barbed wire board. Then Orange caught Claudio with the glass covered orange punch for the one, two, three in 21 minutes. 
despite Claudio's right shoulder being up for half of the count. Uh, the best shot may have been the post-match camera angle of Kingston and Mox bloodied, laying next to each other, barbed wire around them, barely giving each other the finger, and they couldn't do anything else but just lay there and do that. This is a really tough match to analyze, okay? I seriously disliked it up until Sue showed up. Not because Sue showed up, but that was the point where the match went from gory and violent and very one-sided to actually entertaining with action both ways. Most notable for me is that BCC, the most violent, mean, dirty faction in the entire company, the ones who want people to bleed and die, they have now lost blood and guts and stadium stampede both in the last six weeks. It was cool for best friends to like finally get their first notable win. It was proper to feature Kingston and Orange in the finish. They're the two most over guys on the babyface team. I went 3.75 stars B plus. I think that's appropriate because it mixed the good and the bad with the big spots at the end carrying it. Your point about the match changing when Sue showed up is is key. Early on, so like I, I've said a lot of good things about AW's production on the show, and it was, but this match, it was really bad. And maybe it's impossible to do it well when you have a match like this. But early on, so many camera cuts, and they kept cutting right before somebody was about to get like hit with something. Like we don't need to see everybody every 10 seconds. It just, it was hard for things to build. Um, and this was way too gory for me to start. The skewers literally hanging out of Mox's head. It was like kind of funny, but also disgusting. Like to me, like stabbing people is not wrestling and it's not what stadium stampede is supposed to be. That's what blood and guts is supposed to be. That's what like other things are supposed to be. Uh, so I just I was really down on this early on. And you've got guys doing suplexes into things where it's not even caught on camera live. There there's one backstage. So like you're taking this brutal hit all for the purpose of it being shown on a replay that doesn't get much reaction anyway. The Penta situation happens. And I was confused at what was going on. They're playing this music, cameras zoomed out. And then it comes over the stage and they're not quite explaining it. And then there's this guy in red fighting. I'm like, oh, wait, that's Penta again. Excalibur tries to explain it, but there wasn't enough time because then they start fighting again. I was just like, what is going on here? And then Sue shows up and it got back to just being a wrestling match. You made the point that you wish Sue had handed out treats for them to get power. Yeah, like power up, like a video or something. game. Yeah. I want, I wish Sue had hit I wish Sue had hit somebody with the car. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like she like hit came Mox. up pretty slow. Yeah, and, exactly. And BCC just kind of zoomed. Uh, yeah, like just drive in and hit Mox. He'll he'll figure out how to take that hit. Like I just I thought that would have been a really cool moment that they just kind of didn't do. Um, also, Chuck Taylor took a suplex onto Legos. Wow, oh, I missed, I missed that. was doing his swing and, and and people are people are counting the swing and then they cut real quick and you see him take a suplex onto Legos and you're like, dude, you don't need to do that right now. You're just you're taking these bumps when nobody's paying attention to it. So it's just it was too much uh, for much of this time. But the finish was great. Uh, Orange looked like he had the absolute shit beat out of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I liked the idea of them winning and, and best friends finally getting their moment. They did a big best friends moment. The three of them carrying each other out. Very cool stuff. You're right though, that it is weird that BCC has now lost the last two group matches that were pretty violent. So 
And uh, there, and a BCC strange. member took the fall here. They could have had Santana or Ortiz take the fall. Yeah. Claudio lost. It was like, yeah, you know, why are you beating? The- yeah, but not yes, yeah. So it's strange, but I did enjoy the final third of this. But yes, my God, like also th- this happened. So this match happens. We have had like four people blade blade or bleeding at this point in the show. We had Punk. We had Jack Perry in the opening. Uh, we had Stadium Stampede. That's like three of the first five matches. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was just, it was a lot. And sometimes, especially with Mox, they go to that level. And I just, I don't like it. It's not a slink to me, but they, it did come around and finish well. So Tony Khan announced in the uh, all out post scrum, post all in scrum. <laughs> and get this, get this booking. Okay. So John Moxley is going to have a match at all out. The person who faces him will be either Orange Cassidy or Penta for the international championship. Let's remember that Orange holds the title. So rather than he be the one to get the bye, quote unquote, they're letting him Mm -hmm. fight Penta with the winner getting Moxley as a challenger for the title. Uh, This to me makes no sense, okay? Mox and Orange have been going at it forever, right? The gimmick is that Penta and Orange both have issues with Mox because Mox took out Ray Phoenix and Mox has been all over Orange. So they both want to fight him so that whoever wins gets to fight Mox. But if you have Mox fight Penta, then you get Mox fighting Penta and fighting Orange because Mox obviously would have won that match. So rather than being able to tell that story and have him fight both of them, instead, he's only going to get to fight one of them. And you have two baby faces fighting each other on Dynamite. And you have your champion a couple days after Stadium Stampede getting opened up and gutted like a fish almost. You have him now fighting again Wednesday and then again next Sunday. It it really does not make not, sense. Not a, Go ahead. And not only that, but Orange won. And he, <laughs> he won. won the match. And he, he won the match. The, the faces won the match. Both of them won. And now they have to he fight each other. Pin, yeah, so. yeah. And he got the pin on top yeah. of it. So it's like, it's really, really, really dumb. But what's going to happen, and we've been talking about this for weeks, is uh, Orange will win, obviously. He's not going to lose his title on Dynamite. He's going to fight Mox. And he's going to have every excuse in the world to drop the international title. Mox will win it at All Out because probably the hand will come into play and he's going to be exhausted having gotten the shit kicked out of him uh, for the last eight days. So it'll make all the sense in the world. All right, moving on. Darby Allen and Sting fought Swerve Strickland and Christian Cage in a coffin match. Backstage after Dynamite, AR Fox apologized to Nick Wayne, saying he turned heel because he panicked after losing to Cassidy, thinking everyone lost faith in him and he had no other choice. Wayne walked away from him, but Darby shook his hand. At least they didn't have Nick look like an idiot for like taking him back right away. So we got the match. Darby and Sting got a video package as usual. They also came out to Seek and Destroy by Metallica. Best entrance on the show to that point. Uh, there were also fireflies yep. during it when lights went out. That was cool. And Nigel McGuinness on commentary mentioned fireflies to his credit. Sting used a cricket bat and the faces uh, donned uh, thumbtack covered hoodies. Darby had a good like orange like run with his hands tied behind his back. He had a flip over stunner on Swerve on the apron. Then Sting splashed Swerve off the apron into a table that did not break. Excalibur said it was made of steel. It was a wood table. You could see it was a wood table. Sting seemed like he was going to like climb to the top rope or something. But like as he was about to do it, he thought better. And instead he went back to the apron and crashed ass first into Swerve in a gnarly spot that absolutely had to hurt. Super dangerous. Uh, Darby did the missile dropkick of Christian through a chair at ringside. Luchasaurus saved Christian from the coffin. So Nick Wayne attacked and got chokeslammed into a skateboard. And then Luchasaurus just disappeared. 
Darby missed coffin drop outside, flying right into the casket. Sting no-sold a chair shot from Swerve, then ate a cricket bat to the gut uh, from Christian, plus a Swerve stomp. The casket was thrown into the ring, but Swerve stupidly tried to bury the bat with Sting, so he propped the door open with the bat. Christian choked Darby at ringside. Swerve missed a 450 on Sting into the casket. So Darby drilled Christian with the TNT title. Sting hit Scorpion Death Drop on Swerve into the coffin. And Darby hit Coffin Drop on Swerve, who was halfway out of the coffin for the eventual win. There were parts of the match that were silly, like Luchasaurus interfering and then leaving. But I got to say, through this point at all in, when this match happened, this was one match that completely exceeded my expectations, like to a surprising level. What I hate the most is Swerve took the L for no reason whatsoever. Christian easily could have lost that match. He ate a shit ton of punishment here. He ate a shit ton of punishment on the go home where Sting beat his ever loving ass at ringside. I forget Sting's age. I wish I could mention it, but like, what is he, 65, 70? And no, it's not 70. Well, uh, he's like 60, 65. This is an old ass dude beating the shit out of what should be one of your top young rising stars. I fucking hate that stuff. I went 3.75 stars in B plus because the match was great. I just, I really didn't like Swerve losing again. Sting is 64. Oh, it's close. Okay. And I love, yeah. And I, I enjoyed the entrances to this, both of them. I love the British top hat Joker Sting thing was kind of cool. And even Swerve's entrance, I thought actually was live than it is just playing his song. I thought having the guy there to sing it, it was actually enunciated better. You could make out the words and everything. So I, I, I mm-hmm. like that. Sting wrestling in a t-shirt was funny to me, even though I know he kind of does already, but just like the red shirt with the, yeah, with the big different. scorpion. I just couldn't help but think of Starcade uh, in, in that big year, the whole big issue that Sting wrestling in a t-shirt because he wasn't in shape or whatever. The end of this match was very fun. All the different fun coffin spots. I don't remember, like, you maybe correct me, but like when we've had coffin matches before, do you recall like, someone trying to close it and just like something sticking out to stop it time yes. and time again. Has oh, that happened before? Not like consecutively that many times. No, but it's that spot's yeah. definitely been done. Yeah, it, it was very fun. And I actually kind of, I laughed at the end because Swerve gets thrown in the, in the coffin and they close it, but his hair is sticking out. Yeah. His dreadlock was still sticking out. His braid is still sticking out the side. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so I didn't know if that counted or not based mm-hmm. on all the different, spots no. we had had before it needs to be like an extremity something like that it needs to be an extremity yeah. or the lid can't close all the way yeah i don't know <laughs> i mean the bat i guess the I, bat I counted very- if the bat counts why can't a braid yeah. like, I, don't, I don't see why that yeah. it, it would be very fun for them to lean into that and for swerve to say we didn't lose i didn't lose my hair was sticking out some sort of rematch or something right as, as a way to get swerve help swerve get something back but you're right. This was a lot more enjoyable than I thought it was coming in, especially with the late booking change. Mm-hmm. The one, my biggest criticism, honestly, is at the end, Sting and Darby get this big win in this big moment on this stage, and Excalibur immediately just starts talking about what Darby has coming up next at All Out. And I was like, man, I don't want to think about that match right now. Like, I just want to, like, take this in, right. let it breathe. He didn't do that. He just starts talking about what Darby's got coming up next. And I'm like, well, then what the hell is this? Well, you just told me this doesn't matter, like, with the way you called that at the end. So that kind of annoyed me. But this this definitely overachieved my expectations coming in. This didn't matter, though, like, in the grand scheme, because he he's had that title match for, like, a month. So in theory, this really did mm-hmm. not matter. But 
nevertheless. Uh, Trio's Championship, House of Black against the Acclaimed and Billy Gunn. There was an Acclaimed music video on Collision. It was the second best one of these that they've done. You know what? I think it was the best one that they've actually done now that I think about it. Anyway, House of Black came out for All In, wearing all white for a change with a lantern in a beautiful tribute to Bray Wyatt. The fans also did Fireflies when the lights went out. Really cool on them. Max Caster's rap, I would say it was a solid B. We talked about that on the Ultimate Preview, if you would nail it. Couple good lines, not his best. Apparently, this was randomly a house rules match they decided, with the chosen stipulation being no holds barred. I've talked about this before. The house rules or lack of house rules, completely inconsistent. Julia Hart took a scissoring. You would think that would be extra on OnlyFans or something. Billy ducked Black Mass, which is now called The End. Good name for that. Uh, Gunn then hit a series of famousers with one on Buddy Matthews, appearing to be the end, but Julia pulled the referee out of the ring. Malachi Black then caught Gunn with the end for a 2.9 false finish. I don't remember anyone ever kicking out of that move before, AEW or WWE. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong. Uh, Gunn then escaped Dante's Inferno with a claim hitting a rival and mic drop for a one count on Brody King. So Gunn hit a famouser on him. Then acclaimed hit a second arrival and a second mic drop and a triple cover for a one, two, three to win the trio's titles. Black yanked the titles out of their hands during the celebration as the house then decided to formally hand them the titles. Then Anthony Bowens got everyone in Wembley to do scissor me. This one does be expected. Nothing more, nothing less. I was surprised that Brody took the fall instead of Buddy. So I was glad to be proven wrong there, but that's really about it. Not notable for any reason, but a nice babyface title win in the penultimate match in the card. One mistake, Julia Hart was standing right next to the referee. She could have pulled her out of the ring again, just like she did earlier, but chose not to. So that didn't really make any sense. I went 2.75 stars in a C plus, but it was super entertaining. I got to say, we did not get a Prince Harry and Meghan joke on the intro rap. I, we thought for sure we'd get one. There was a Meghan Markle reference and a Prince Andrew reference, but not a joke at the expense of Harry and Meghan. So mm -hmm. uh, the, the odds, if you if you bet on that, the, you, you made bank on that because we thought that was going to happen for sure. House of Black wearing white was just weird for a lot of reasons, most notably being they look less scary in their House of Black and also Brody King looked like he was wearing tidy whities out there. Um, this was... A lot of fun. And speaking of ages, I mean, Billy Gunn is 59 and dude can still go like it was a lot of movement around him. But trying some famous doing some other things, dude looks like a million bucks. We've said that a million times, but just wanted to point that out because now he's a trios champion at 59 years old, which is really cool. And acclaimed like that uh, in that spot is is cool. I don't know what it means moving forward for everybody, but this was a fine second to last match where people can have some fun. It's not too crazy as you get ready for the main event. And lastly, the FTW championship, Jack Perry against Hook. This was on zero hour. Jungle Boy first opened collision, ready to retire the FTW title with a mock funeral. It included a slideshow of him with the title in like a dozen places. Just as he was about to destroy it with a sledgehammer, Hook appeared on the big screen doing pull-ups on a streetlight, saying the title was his birthright. Then he suplexed Perry and gently T-Bone suplexed him into a table. He said Wembley Sunday and walked off. And it was immediately announced with a graphic five seconds later. Like I said on the Ultimate Preview, this did not need to be on the show, but fair play to putting two young guys on. So the match. Uh, this started with a brawl and a limo with a brain buster on the roof and rolling thunder off the roof into the hood. Really cool. Then Perry looked into the camera and said, real glass, go cry me a river before taking a fisherman suplex 
into the windshield with his arm getting lacerated. More on that in a minute. Jack teased a Van Terminator as a heel antic, and then they had a bunch of suplexes back in the ring. After Hook dodged Perry, he locked him in red rum to win back the FTW title. Definitely the right booking given Hook the title back, but basically everything about this worked except for when Jack tried to trash talk because guess what? He doesn't know how to cut good promos and the guy does not speak well. I did think ultimately this was fine for a pre-show match. I went 3.25 stars and a B, mostly for the limo spots, which totally stood out. I just have no idea where Jack goes from here as a character, losing yet another big match, this time to a guy in Hook, who's really not much of anything status-wise. Yeah, this was, I thought this was Jack Perry's most interesting heel moment, segment. It's It's been very hit and miss, but I thought he came across very well as a heel here, but then you have have him losing and okay don't know what to make of that i don't know what's next for him we'll get into that in a second but the only other thing i wrote down here about this was that when jack perry's doing his entrance with the limo jim ross says quote we live in a society where the so-called elite like to flaunt their eliteness and i assume he was just talking about jack perry pretending to be rich or something like that but it was very very odd in the context of everything with the aew that is what he was talking about and the and, and the Jack Perry stuff and everything. So I assumed it had to be that or something. I I don't know. But uh, that, on top of what happened right after that, backstage, mm-hmm. very, very weird. Um, I, uh, overall, I thought, again, I thought it was good for Jack Perry, but he lost and he lost the title. So I don't know what that means moving forward. So that was our breakdown of all 11 matches on the AEW All-In London card. We are going to get to our grades for the overall event in a minute. Before we get to that, let me double back to that real glass, go cry me a river comment from Jack Perry. One thing I did not mention during my CM Punk rant a couple weeks ago was that he had reportedly gotten into it with Jack, who wanted to do a spot on collision where he took a bump using real glass. Punk reportedly told him that it was stupid and unnecessary. And the reason I left it out of the rant is because to me, that's kind of a reasonable disagreement between coworkers. But Punk came off in the report as a veteran trying to just give some advice. Now that said, it was information that Punk had fed his friendly media. But what the hell does any of this have to do with All In besides Perry's comment into the camera? Well, according to PW Insider, Fightful, and PW Torch, Punk and Jack had a physical confrontation backstage right before Punk went through the curtain before his main card opener. I wish I could tell you this was a joke. It's not. There are two versions of the story. One is that Perry stepped in Punk's face and bumped him. Punk then pushed Jack and choked him. The other, and this is the one that seems to have permeated in a lot more areas, is that Punk confronted Perry backstage after the comment, mushed his hand in his face, put him in a headlock, and threw some punches before they were separated. Perry was then forced to leave the building and head home. Punk had security in his locker room and apparently left the building as well a little bit later. It is not known whether there was a planned confrontation with MJF that was scrapped maybe at the end of the show, but I doubt that based on the way the main event finished. And that's really all we have coming out of this that we know as at the time we're taping this show. But you seriously cannot make this shit up if you tried. We've already spent so much time on All In, and we still have to get to grades and final thoughts. So I'm going to save you all from, I don't know what, a 30, 45-minute rant about AEW's backstage problems. But 
we obviously have to discuss this to some degree. Clearly, I've held the opinion that Punk is a backstage cancer and has been enabled by Tony Khan. Nothing that happened here dissuades that notion. However, it would be absurd to put all the blame on Punk here. Perry directly instigated Punk immediately before his match on AEW's biggest show ever. That is completely unacceptable on his part. He not only needed to be sent home, he needs to be suspended. Regardless of who started the shit backstage afterward, I cannot believe Perry would be the one to get in Punk's face first. That would not make any sense. But we obviously cannot be surprised hearing that Punk was involved with another backstage altercation. If the story of Punk getting physical first is true, it continues to prove the point that the guy who talks about others being soft remains the softest dude ever. Jack should not have instigated, but he's 26. Punk is 18 years older than him and should be able to control himself in situations like this. But we know he can't control himself because he's never controlled himself. There's no scenario where something is said about him where something like this does not happen as a reaction. And why did this happen? Partially because Jack started it Sunday, sure. But Punk is the one who had his media leak the prior argument about the glass to make himself look good. And Tony Khan is the one who has no handle on his locker room from a leadership standpoint. And he continues to enable this behavior by Punk. He let everyone off scot-free from brawl out. He rehired Ace Steel. He gave Punk a fake title and even gave him his own show where he has a ton of creative and personnel control. Now everyone on the roster thinks they can do whatever the hell they want, including Perry. Don't get it twisted. What Jack did Sunday was immature bullshit. He put part of the show at risk. Maybe he put the entire show at risk. Punk talked at Brawl Out about working with children. Here's an example of him working with children. But Punk is not blameless for potentially escalating it physically. And Tony is completely to blame for enabling Punk putting him above the rest of the roster and allowing this atmosphere to permeate AEW, where it's as big, if not bigger news, than putting 81,000 fucking fans in Wembley fucking stadium in year four of the company's existence. Tony Khan did bring this up in his opening statement in the post-show press conference. Scrum said, quote, I can't comment on it, but yes, there was an incident backstage before we went live. We are investigating it. Until we know more about what happened, I can't really address it. I did want to be honest and say that is the case. And one other part about the original leak from a couple of weeks ago. Not only did it come out that Punk didn't want Jungle Boy Jack Perry to do the glass spot, it, the reason claimed originally was that Jack Perry just wanted to avoid coming to work the next week. Mm -hmm. And so that was a way to do it. Then it was later said from, I assume, Jack's side that, no, he already had a pre-planned vacation, so the glass spot would have been a way to write him out for a week or two. I I, I remain completely confused by this so-called power that CM Punk has, not only determining who can and cannot come in the building, including if they're your freaking head of talent relations, but also what other people can do in their matches. Is CM Punk just producing the show? What is that? He apparently has personnel and creative Punk. control. Sorry, yeah. Not, but creative control for somebody else? For Collision, yeah. Like that's, some it, of it. He apparently has booking power to some degree. It's just wild. Like, I just, in, in, insane type of stuff. What does that um, sound like to you, Chris? I don't think this, 
I don't. A big name superstar who gets like. that sounds uh, like something I've never seen in wrestling before. A big name superstar who gets paid a lot of money and gets to do whatever they want. Sounds like Hulk Hogan and WCW. I mean, it does. No, but Hulk Hogan was not making decisions about other people's matches. Yes, he. he of that's, course, he was. Him and Kevin Nash and all those guys. Of course. Well, that's a little. Bit, Kevin Nash's the Booker is a little bit different than Hulk Hogan. They all had but significant. Yeah, you're impact. probably right. It is probably closer to almost to Kevin Nash being a booker a little bit at some point. That that is that is pretty crazy. But at least for AEW, they seem to. First off, at least it happened early in the show and not after a post press conference where CM Punk can shit on his boss again in front of everybody. Uh, we'll see. But like, if you're Tony Khan, you have to you have to bring the hammer down this time, even more than before. Like does CM Punk lose his real world championship again? Is he stripped of it? Is he stripped of his <laughs> fake title again? Or something like that? I, I, I don't know. Jack Perry. I, I don't know what's side to believe in all of this. It, it, it's a mess. It's embarrassing for, for the company and everybody involved. I do think considering the rest of the show, this is mostly a footnote. Thankfully, because it was a really good show and we can talk about just the bigger picture of the show now, but we wanted to talk about that and just how ridiculous it is now week after week. This is like three straight weeks of just CM Punk stories of what's going on. And I don't understand how you can think of that as a work environment that you can survive in. If this is starting to happen every week and guys are getting physical again, it's not survivable. And again, like we, one of the reasons I don't want to spend too much time on it right now is because it's very difficult to, draw conclusions when the stuff just happened. Like I want to digest it, be able to speak on it more intelligently later this week. But at the same time, if we wait until Thursday, then who the hell knows how much can transpire between now and Thursday. So I'm glad we spent a little bit of time on it here, but I just don't want to go too crazy with that. All right, enough with the bullshit. Let's get back into AEW all in with our grades segment. We of course go over our pre-show expectation grades and our post-show grades, which are most important. For AEW All In, recapping our pre-show grades on the Ultimate Preview, Chris and I both thought this would be an A-minus show. Our listeners who voted on Twitter, at Getting Overcast, they said 39% A, 51% B, 8% C, 2% D to F. Again, that's the pre-show grades. That averages out to an 87 or a B plus. So they had lower expectations than we did coming into the show. Again, all the votes from the listeners were taken on Twitter at Getting Overcast. So if you don't follow us already, make sure you follow us there so you can vote in our pre and post show polls next week for WWE Payback and yes, AEW All Out back to back shows. But Chris, when we talk about post show grades here on these instant analysis podcasts, we always allow you to go first. So wrap it up for us. What was your final grade for AEW All In London? Believe it or not, I'm going with an A. Mm. I'm going with an A show. I think this should be up for show of the year. I enjoyed the hell out of this, man, from top to bottom. If you're going just by what happened with the matches, it's it's an A minus. But when you throw in the spectacle, when you throw in the very good production and the moments that they were able to make and this, the whole scene, they nailed it, man. They nailed it everything about this i thought this was spectacular i had just a hell of a time watching it nothing was bad everything was good to great like there was just there was nothing on this show that i was like oh that was a waste of time like literally everything kept my attention i mean 
uh, enjoying it. And the pacing of this show was the best AEW has ever done. It never felt like, oh, my God, we still have five matches to go after all of this. Mm -hmm. It was so much better than Forbidden Door in that sense and things that they've done before. The pacing, the production, the wrestling, everything was there. They completely delivered on their biggest showcase ever. And I'm giving it an A. Don't you think part of the pacing success was the fact that it was daytime? Like it didn't possibly you know, like it's, it's very different ending a show, a six hour show, by the way, mind you, at 5 p.m. Eastern than it is ending a six hour show at midnight or 1230 or 1 a.m. It, it, it is that. But it's also like I mentioned earlier, where I where I said in a positive way that it didn't feel like every match was trying to be the greatest wrestling match on the card. It wasn't. They yes. were all trying to one up each other. It felt like they were all doing exactly what they needed to do at that spot on the card. And that's something AW rarely gets. So you're at a full A. Let's go to our listeners, the getting overheads and their post-show grades. The votes on Twitter came back 46% A, so 7% higher than it was going in. 41% B, 10% C, 3% D to F. We know it was not a D or F show, so we throw those out. Those are absolutely ridiculous. But that averages out to an 88 to my utter shock. So one point higher than the pre-show expectation grade. Very, very close. Let me get to my grade. So the, go. Well, real quick, real quick on the audience. Yeah. What's dragging that down? The biggest thing I can't understand about that poll is 10% C. Yeah, but you know 10%? what? 10%? That happens when we do our WWE shows where like you and I are firmly A or A minus. There's always like that 10% C. And you'd like to say, okay, well, those are just biased tribal fans, so we can't count it. But it's consistent. So like if some people that was an average show and I guess you could make like, if you want to make it a C show argument, you would have to block out the fact that it was 80,000 fans at Wembley. Now, if you took that show and you put it in Seattle, right, then you could say, all right, you know, maybe someone didn't love the way that show was booked and it was a C, but because it was in Wembley with 80,000 fans, the spectacle, the ambiance, it's very difficult for me to even fathom how it would be a 10%, but that actually doesn't really drag it down. It's really the split between the A and the B. It's not heavy A, which kind of prevents it from getting anywhere higher than an A minus. You need to be like, when you do the, these averages, you need to be like mm-hmm. 65, 70% A if you want the grade to actually be an A from the listeners. That's just how it goes. It's consistent across every single one of these that we do. But again, listeners, 88% B plus. Now going into all in, at least for me, the show was a lot more about the achievement of packing Wembley Stadium and putting on a really entertaining wrestling show that would be good enough to satisfy the crowd more so than putting on the best possible show when it comes to storytelling, booking, work rate, you know, in-ring, all that type of stuff. And that was the right decision by AEW to some degree because you want to appeal to as many people as possible. While getting both of those in one would have been obviously incredible. And that should be the goal of like a WrestleMania where you have your best matches with your biggest stars, with the, you know, wrapping up the storylines in the best moments in front of the biggest crowd that you're in front of all year. That that should be the goal. But it's nearly impossible to expect or achieve, especially when they decided to do all in. And the plan, you know, they didn't know they were going to sell 80,000. They didn't know it was going to work as well as it did. But of course, it, it was fantastic. For me... I think in some ways, just from an entertainment standpoint, this was AEW's best pay-per-view. 
I'm not saying the wrestling was the best. I'm not saying the storylines were the best. In fact, neither is true. They've had better wrestling shows and they've had better shows with storylines going in and, and being resolved as part of the show. However, the mix of the atmosphere and some of the pageantry and the crowd-pleasing results allowed this show to just be straight up fun and entertaining without having to think too much about the other stuff. So for me, All In comes out as an A, but I don't think I'm as you know boisterously excited about it as you. I thought it was a very, very good show. Clearly, I'm giving it an A, but it's like an a, it's a 94. It's right there on the borderline of an A minus. I, I it'd probably be an 93.5 that averages out to a 94 for me. And even though direct comparisons are not necessary here, this achieved in many ways what WWE SummerSlam did not last month. It was the closest yes. that AEW has come to a WrestleMania. It wasn't a WrestleMania because it didn't have all of the pageantry and it didn't have all of the big time storylines that lead up to that one big show of the year. But it was definitely close and the AEW version of it. Maybe it's just the step up in the visuals and the amount of fans that makes me think that it was better than it was in reality. And I could admit that if you take this show and you put it in a different venue, like I said earlier, maybe I would look at it and I would say, yeah, you know what? B plus show, B show. I mean, maybe, maybe, but that's not where it was. It was in Wembley Stadium. There were 81,000 fans there and I enjoyed the hell out of it. Uh, in terms of the matches, you're right. I am nowhere near an A on my average for matches and there have been way better AEW shows from a wrestling standpoint. But if you take a really above average match quality with a couple that really surprised and you add in the pageantry and the set, and the crowds, and the and the booking decisions that popped the crowd. I am right on that verge. I could definitely see like me resting on it and like not being so caught up in the moment, coming back tomorrow and being like, you know what? That's an A minus show, not really an A. But again, you're splitting hairs. It, this, this doesn't really matter, our grades, right? Uh, the show just never really had a low point, and it was consistently fun. What, what do you mean? What do you mean this doesn't really? What do you mean this doesn't really matter, our grades? Our grades are the most important thing well, on this podcast. What I'm what I'm saying is the difference between an A and an A minus doesn't matter. Our grades, our, our grades are obviously the most important thing in professional wrestling. Anyone who doesn't listen to our grades, match grades, show grades, they're idiots, obviously. But what I'm saying is the difference between an A and A minus is a really good show. It was a great show. Uh, so yeah, that's where I sit. Yeah, what do you? What are your thoughts on my take and and the fans? I feel like you don't need to like caveat it so much. You don't need to pre-defend yourself giving it an A. You can just celebrate that it was an A. No, you I'm know, explaining I feel like why. A lot of times you're I'm explaining why it's an A. It, it was just, it was, it's so cool. This isn't relevant to the grade specifically, but it's so cool that within six years of that Cody Rhodes, Dave Meltzer Twitter bet over can Ring of Honor get 10,000 fans in an arena that we got 80,000, 90,000, if you include everybody in Wembley Stadium for a new company. That's just, mm -hmm. just a remarkable achievement. And I was so worried that they were going to drop the ball, that they were going to have production issues, that it was going to be a five-hour show. And well, it, it was. Just, it wasn't. They, it was they, a five, it, hold on. It was well, a five-hour show. If you got the pre-show. No, it was a six-hour show. Got, if you got the pre-show. It was six hours, no, including the pre-show, wasn't it? Well, pre-show was, I didn't know the pre-show was two hours. I missed yeah. the first hour of it. But it was five hours if, of wrestling. If you're counting. Five hours of wrestling. It was, if, yeah. Less than five hours because the first match didn't start to like halfway through. But yeah, it was not something where 
I, I thought this was going to be like a six hour type of show. And, and, gotcha. and they just, they hit on everything. All the mistakes we see from previous AEW shows, moments, stories, whatever. They just, they hit it. And I, I hope they can build off of this. And it's the most excited I have felt about AEW in quite a long time. It's been a rough well, couple of years after Brawl Out and injuries and stuff like that. So I hope they can build the momentum off of this. It's bizarre that there's a pay-per-view next week. But in terms of what a in terms of what All In was, smashing success. I was just so excited and happy with it. I'm glad you mentioned that about momentum because that's where I wanted to go next. So I suspect them announcing 81,035 tickets sold. And I think Tony said 90,000 plus catering and all the other people, you know, suites and all that type of stuff. Um, and then they announced at the end of the show that AEW All in London has already been booked again for 2024, the exact same weekend. Plus, this is obviously likely going to get a highly critical response besides you and I. A lot of other people are being very positive about it. That leads me to believe they're going to have the confidence to do a United States stadium show in the near future. I have no idea if that's going to work because let's just be candid about what's happening right now. They're kind of struggling to sell TV and arena pay-per-views right now. Struggling is the wrong word. They are not selling out pay-per-views like they used to, certainly not immediately like they used to. And many TV shows are only getting like three or 4,000 people. That said, this kind of felt like a tide-turning show for them. WWE for the last year, in my opinion, has been far better than AEW, both from an entertainment standpoint on TV and premium live events, and then from a business standpoint. But with SummerSlam, pretty disappointing. Payback, an entirely flat show next week. I mean, I don't even, like, there's talent on the card, but the build feels like a C-level pay-per-view, not even a B-level pay-per-view. You have Roman Reigns, your champion, off for months. And then, on the other hand, you have All In Succeeding Mightily, some solid television they've had recently, the teases of Mercedes Monet. It's possible that this indeed was a tide-turning show. They may be able to regain a lot of the momentum that they lost against their competition over the last year. Now, we're going to have to see, number one, if they capitalize on it Wednesday during Dynamite, and then number two, if they capitalize on it next Sunday at All Out. Because you can bet your ass a ton of people bought this pay-per-view, and clearly they sold 81,000 tickets. But it's going to be the buy rate of All Out, the ratings of Dynamite this Wednesday and then next Wednesday that really tell us whether something happened here or if it just happened to be a one-off damn good show and they're going to they're gonna do this once a year and it'll, and it'll work. But if they do a huge buy rate here and they do a huge buy rate for All Out, Tony Khan also announced they're going to be doing a Wrestle Dream pay-per-view on October 1st. So three pay-per-views in a five-week span $150 they want us to spend in a five-week span. They're doing it to honor Antonio Inoki a year after his death. I don't know why it's AEW that needs to honor Antonio Inoki a year after his death with a pay-per-view in Seattle of all places, but okay, fine. Um, if like if from now until October 1st, they're able to pick up a significant amount of momentum and WWE continues seemingly losing a little bit of momentum, uh, again, because... SummerSlam didn't really hit, Roman Reigns is gone, and Payback, the build's been pretty damn weak. There's names on the card that are notable, but it's not a strong uh, premium live event. So head-to-head -head next week with Payback on Saturday and All Out on Sunday, 
All Out may win head to head. It's very possible. Um, if they pick up that kind of momentum, then I could I wouldn't be surprised if at some point next year, I don't know when exactly it would be, maybe they run a US stadium show. The other part of this is football is coming back. So Raw is going to be going up against Monday Night Football. Right. While Dynamite obviously does not. So that's another opportunity there. In terms of running Wembley again, I at first I was like, wow, that's incredibly bold because mm-hmm. clearly they would have done that before this show. The fact that this show did what it did, I think booking it for next year was great. Yeah, you had to. Yeah. You try to start selling those tickets as soon as you can uh, to try to continue the momentum coming off of this show. But I really don't want all in Wembley to be a thing every year. It is. It's this be. is one of the other problems when it comes to AEW pay-per-views is that they run the same shows in the same cities. Mm-hmm. All Out is always in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Double or Nothing is always in Vegas. And that gets really old really fast. And we saw that after the first couple of years of AEW, where they were running the same towns over and over and over. I'm one of those towns. I've been to like five AEW shows <laughs> here. You start to lose that a bit. You do. So... U.S. stadium show for AEW, they're not there yet. Now, if you do it just in half the stadium or something like that, I mean, that's what SummerSlam was. Right. Maybe, but I wouldn't be confident in doing that now or really anytime soon. And you don't have to do American stadium shows to be a viable company or anything, but this was obviously a unique situation. AEW had not gone over there before, a lot of different things. I know Tony Khan said next year they hope to have Pac, they hope to have Jamie Hayter, they hope to have Brian Danielson. Right. Uh, maybe we do Brian Anderson, Nigel McGinnis, or something like that. I, I don't. The know. The question is: so there hey, are Chris. The question is: next options. year, the next year, next year, will they have CM Punk? That's the question. Yeah, and also, <laughs> if they do what they've been doing, are they going to do back-to-back pay-per-views? They are two That's, weeks in a row. Two he said that. He said we want to do Tony. Tony said at the All Out Scrum, he said we want to do both holiday weekends. This is a holiday weekend in England right now, so he wants to do yes. uh, this all all in holiday weekend. All out holiday weekend. He plans to do the same two shows back to back next year in Chicago. Also for all that, like, like I would love. So like, there the Jags. I'm sorry, the Fulham Stadium, Craven Cottage, capacity twenty five thousand seven hundred. Like, that would be a great place to do another one. You yeah. know, like you don't need to do the eighty thousand seat stadium every time because if you, the more you do it the less special they all get if you're just going to do them in the same spots. That's what the most recent all out a year ago and the most recent, uh, especially the most recent double or nothing. were not selling nearly as what they had done before, because like it's the same thing now, you know, every year. So I just don't want them to over saturate that uh, and just keep that in mind as they do things moving forward. The other thing I did forget to mention, because I was mentioning like how some shows are only selling three or 4,000 tickets and, their pay-per-views aren't selling out in America, at least not right away. Sometimes eventually they do at the end. But um, the show in, I'm forgetting the name of it, in New York, uh, Arthur Ashe, Grand Slam. Uh, Grand Slam is not Grand selling Slam. anywhere near the way the first one did or the second one did. It, it's struggling to sell tickets. Now, they raised prices significantly, but they're struggling to sell tickets to that. So the question is, have they just run the market too much? Or have they kind of capped their fan base in the United States, but... In the United Kingdom and, and in Europe, they're they're soaring potentially. I mean, again, let's not forget what we talked about on the ultimate preview when it comes to the ticket sales here. And by the way, this is not downplaying it. Massively impressive, huge achievement. You know, 
whether you want to give them the moniker for biggest pro wrestling show ever or not, it's up to you. For me, paid attendance, if it's the biggest number, it's the biggest show. That's as far as I'm concerned. Um, but it was a perfect storm for them. They had never been to Europe ever. They had a, a crowd that was rabid for them to get to Europe because of the pandemic and, and all this type of stuff. Uh, they decided to run Wembley. They picked a holiday weekend. Uh, these and, and it's not lucky, but it's a perfect storm. Tony Khan made very smart decisions here, okay? And it paid off with this epic show that they were able to put together. Running this back next year, are they going to sell 81,000 again? Even if they don't, if they sold 75, let's say, that doesn't matter. They already have the number and it would still be a huge achievement. They don't have to sell 81 again. If they do great, and then it's super impressive if they can do it every year. You would think at some point though, it's going to wear thin. How many years in a row, if you live in London or if you live in Europe in travel distance to London, are you going to get your ass over there for this show? And on top of that, how special are the other ones going to be if this one, you know, already happened? Like if they had WrestleMania in Dallas every year, it's still going to get, you know, however many 60,000 people going to each show. But if the first year's 85, then I promise you the second year is not going to be 85. At some point, the local, the locals it, it, are going to say, hey, you know what? I've already gone. I don't necessarily need to do it again. Exactly. Until that point, the second Dallas WrestleMania actually was less than the first, although part of that is, yeah. I believe, the setup of the stage. And the first one had more space. And also, how big is their fan base in Europe and United Kingdom? It could have this could have been a situation where I'm just giving you, you know, BS. I don't know. Let's say they have like 1.6 million fans over there just in totality. Right. So you have 80,000 here. That's five percent of perhaps their entire fan base over in Europe that came to go see the show. Can they get a different five percent every year? Can they get the same 5% to come back? Or are they going to add fans? Might they lose fans? Like there's so many different things to consider, but you know, look, it was ballsy to do this. It's ballsy to book it again. I don't have much doubt that they're going to succeed, but I do wonder, and we can wrap it up on this, whether the momentum of AEW All In is going to carry on for AEW. It's going to be very interesting to find out, not just over the next two weeks, but again, I think we revisit this conversation after that Wrestle Dream show, because they're asking fans who aren't attending any of these to spend $150 in a five-week span to watch their product. That's pretty yeah, my big. Brother, yeah. My brother usually buys these shows, the AEW shows. I buy Peacock and some other things. He is he bought all in for us. He's not buying all out. So like I don't blame it, him. It, it's it is it is a, a it, there is a spot. And you need to, my biggest thing with any of it, just keep it fresh. You can do England again, but do it like do it in a new stadium or something like that. Like I went to the, the first right. AW show in Detroit, place was packed. You know, you just, you got to keep it fresh and not just keep running the same things. And I hope uh, this was an example of them doing that. It, Unbelievable. It's a lesson. I'm also kind of tired, by the way, like AW, AW as a company is fine. Like I'm the ratings, like, Whatever we don't, it doesn't. They just signed the new TV. Yeah, it doesn't deal. matter. Like yeah. everything is good with AEW. Like it doesn't. Like we don't need. To, we don't. I don't even like calling it like an upstart anymore. I don't like it calling it as a company that's challenging WWE or taking on WWE. It it's its own thing. And I think this show more than anything the company has done before is the is the example of that. We talked about this in the preview, like about the AEW WWE fan war and just how tiring that all is. It like is just yeah. Be excited that AEW has built itself into this and had this moment and we want it to continue to get momentum and succeed as a company, not 
not relative to whatever, not so the company doesn't go under. The company is in great shape. Yeah. As eight. long as CM Punk does not destroy it from the inside. As long as CM Punk does not destroy it from the inside. <laughs> things are good, and that's exciting. AEW succeeding is good for WWE. WWE succeeding is good for AEW. We can't stress that enough. Um, I, what I was going to say before you kind of did that, but I do want to correct one thing you said. Uh, they did not sign a new TV deal. They got they added a show and they're getting paid whatever they got for the show, but they did not extend their deal. So they still have to do that with Warner. There's no reason to think that they're not going to. But technically, it's okay, not yeah. it's not extended. Um, but yeah, rising tide lifts all boats in a case like this. And again, the, the, I was just going to wrap up on this. Um, you know, WWE learned a lesson from running the same arenas and same stadiums too frequently when it comes to certain events. They can go to Chicago every year because all they're trying to do, I don't know the capacity, but they're trying to sell 12, 13,000 in whatever arena they run. They can do that because they're the industry leader. Chicago is a huge wrestling town and 12,000 is not a big number. But there's a reason why WWE does not go to the same city every single year for WrestleMania. So it's going to be interesting to see what AEW does. It's going to be interesting to see if AEW decides to do a European tour at any point. And if they do a European tour, does that cut into the ticket sales for All In? If they say, hey, we're only going to come here once a year, we're only going to come to London, and we're only going to do this show, then you have a legitimate shot of getting every single one of your fans or 5% of them or, or whatever percent, I don't know what their fan base is over there, but getting that same percentage to go to that one show. But if you try something like WWE does and you tour Europe, I think they do it twice a year maybe, then if they were to run a show, could they still get that same attendance at Wembley? I don't know that they could. Again, that's part of the perfect storm scenario for them. Now, WWE, if they were to run WrestleMania at Wembley or any other stadium in London or in England or, or wherever, they're going to sell that out, not just once, maybe twice, but they're going to sell a shit ton of tickets because they've never had or they haven't had WrestleMania there. They have done stadium shows. Obviously, they did Clash at the Castle. They, they've done arena shows in London recently. They haven't done a major show like a SummerSlam or, you know, WrestleMania since 1992. So yeah, they'll have success the first time they go. But if WWE started saying, hey, you know what? We're going to do WrestleMania every year in London or in a stadium every single year, or we're going to do Clash in the Castle at a different football stadium every single year, maybe eventually people trickle down and, and stop buying those tickets. It's very curious to find out, and we will learn that lesson, at least when it comes to AEW, over the next year. And, it's, and again, part of determining that is going to be whether they tour Europe like separately, or if they just say, hey, this is going to be our one-stop shopping every single year. You come to Wembley, you get a show like this. Really not a bad deal if you're a European fan. I'm sure if you live in Germany or France or wherever, you'd love it if AEW came to your doorstep. But if all you have to do is go over to London and you get this show, it's probably worth going to. Yeah, we'll see. That was mostly just future talk about running Wembley twos in a row, which is kind of wild. So. Yeah. Uh, looking forward to it. again. I got to tell you, I'm thrilled about. I'm th I'm thrilled about Wembley. I'm not that upset about All Out. I'm pretty annoyed at this Wrestle Dream show. I'm I'm not looking forward to like in the middle of football season having to do a third show in five weeks. I'm a little bit bothered by that. But look, I digress. Yeah, we'll let's get let's get out of here. We've we've given you plenty today already. I hope you all enjoyed it, and obviously, I hope you appreciate it as well. If you do appreciate it, please do not forget that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is on. About Defy. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. Plus, you get to vote in our pre- 
and post-show polls for WWE Payback and AEW All Out both next weekend. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well for five bucks a month, $50 for the year. For the cost of one AEW pay-per-view, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Please visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. You get bonus audio, you get news, and you get to directly support the Silver King, Vintage, and the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Just to quickly tell you what is coming up this week here on Getting Over. On Tuesday, we will have your WWE Payback Ultimate Preview. We also will continue, of course, discussing the death of Bray Wyatt and the way WWE honors him. Uh, That is expected to continue on Raw Monday night. On Wednesday, we will have your NXT show. I'm also going to try to get in some New Japan G1 Climax analysis on there. We'll see how the week transpires. On Thursday, we will have your AEW All Out Ultimate Preview. Then on Saturday, your WWE Payback Instant Analysis. And on Sunday, your AEW all out instant analysis that is a five episode week let's just hope cm punk doesn't do anything else stupid i don't want to have to tape a bonus rant episode about cm punk let's keep it at five shows which is going to give us i don't know chris what is it far five ten shows in two weeks here on the getting over wrestling podcast with that said i'm exhausted i think vintage is tired as well we are going to sign off and leave you with just three final words bye for now